the late 1970s, Texas experienced an incarceration boom that more than doubled its inmate population. With this influx, other inmate groups such as the Texas Syndicate and Aryan Brotherhood arrived via prisoners who had become members of these prison gangs while previously incarcerated in California. The building tender system kept these inmate groups in check until the system's demise. The transition from building tender system to a control system required hiring many more corrections officers. Between 1979 and 1984, the number of guards tripled to about 6,000. The new TDC guards, however, lacked the experience to effectively control the inmates' behavior and were hesitant to intervene in violent inmate-on-inmate -inmate confrontations, which building tenders would have ordinarily squelched instantly. The transition resulted in a power vacuum whereby the prison administration unwillingly relinquished its monopoly on violence to the inmates. This power vacuum in turn led to the liberalization of the protection marketplace within the prison system, resulting in an increase in violence inside the Texas prisons as the 1980s progressed. From 1981 to 1984, assaults against staff increased from 4 to 129, and inmates fought among themselves more frequently. Wars between inmate groups that had been suppressed by the building tenders were now openly waged. In 1984 and 85, the white Aryan Brotherhood fought the black Mandingo warriors out of race hatred, and the Texas Syndicate fought the Texas Mexican Mafia for control of the Hispanic inmates. According to the founder and leader of Barrio Azteca, the Texas Syndicate went to the upstart Mexican Mafia at the Darrington unit and told them, you know what, we want to cut, you gotta pay taxes. Now the TS thought the Mexican Mafia would be scared of them, that they were just gonna lay down. But the enemy were no punks either. They would stand up, and they were somebody to be reckoned with, Jose said. The prison administration, in an attempt to reassert control over their prison yards, responded by isolating every leader they could identify in administrative segregation. With leadership weakened and in need of replacement, both the TS and Mexican Mafia competed for recruits to replenish their ranks of leaders and soldiers, and effectively challenged the other for dominance in the penitentiaries of Texas. El Paso inmates, who are less likely to have associations with either the TS or Mexican Mafia, given the geographical isolation of El Paso from the rest of Texas, were thus sought by both groups, setting the stage for the birth of Barrio Azteca. Even before the prison wars of 1984 and 1985, racial tensions were rising in the Texas state prison system. The need for solidarity among inmates necessitated the formation of what sociologists described as survival units that is, groups that can attack enemies and defend against them. Jose, the leader of Barrio Azteca, described the formation of cliques, the fundamental survival units of medium or maximum security prisons in the 1980s like this. At this time, there was no leader of El Paso at that point, no one person calling the shots. The gangs, the Mexican Mafia and the TS had not gone to war yet, but under the pressure of race war, people were starting to pull together into groups for protection. Not just the prison gangs, but city cliques too. The El Paso homies started to hang out together, and there were other cities that hung out together too. These groups were kind of semi-separate, Jose said, but the one thing we had in common is that we all spoke Spanish, and we always had something going. We weren't bored and we weren't letting time do us. We even helped the weekend mates. We didn't discriminate even against those who had been punked out before. It hadn't always been like that, but as bad as things were in 83, those groups just sort of came together by association. Most of us from El Paso knew each other from the free world, and being locked up together was just like hanging out in the barrio. 
The cliques at that time were not predatory, Jose said. They formed to provide solidarity for their members in the likely event of conflict. In market terms, members faced an uncertain protection market in prison yards where violence, injury, and in some cases death seemed increasingly inevitable. To mitigate the threat of violence, inmates sought to group together. Or as a gang scholar Frederick Thrasher explained, the members of these cliques integrated through the conflict that emerged when building tenders were no longer maintaining order. Simply put, inmates determined that they could better establish and maintain their own safety than the guards can. So they started these groups. Though the conflict between TS and Mexican Mafia started at the Darrington unit, news of their conflict spread throughout the system as inmates were transferred between prisons and joined their fellow gang members otherwhere, such as the Cofield unit, where Jose was. As the war between the Texas Syndicate and Mexican Mafia escalated, each gang faced losses both through violence, segregation, or isolation of their members by the administration. With these losses, both the Mexican Mafia and Texas Syndicate sought to increase their ranks and courted men who were part of city-based cliques that had formed in the early 80s. Many Paso del Norte inmates, in particular, were reluctant to join one prison gang over another because they had friends in both of them and didn't want to take sides. Others simply did not want to participate in the bloody war unfolding in the prison yard. The frustration of losing comrades to the war provided the impetus Jose needed to formalize the clique and begin Barrio Azteca. When the clique started to come together, it was 1985. Jose discussed with his pal Benito Benny Acosta his idea to start a caprucha, a ride, an established prison gang for the El Paso and Juarez inmates. Benny and I were talking about all the shit that had been happening on the unit. A couple more of our homeboys had joined the gangs and I was not feeling too happy about it. El Paso had always been sort of a pseudo gang. We were all about ourselves, and now we're about to get swallowed up by the bigger fish? Hell no. I told Benny, you know what, man? Let's do it, dog. They can't stop us, and we're EPT. With encouragement from Benny, Jose called a meeting on Cofield unit to poll interest in formalizing a gang for El Paso and Juarez inmates. Jose was a likable goofball who didn't have a political profile or a reputation for being a bully. He had the respect of his El Paso peers totally. And given that many of his peers also wanted to avoid participating in the violence between the TS and ME war, Jose's proposition was relatively easy to sell. Most of the El Paso and Juarez inmates at the meeting joined Jose's upstart gang that day. Jose instituted a rough militaristic hierarchy order, placing himself on top with four or five captains under him. The rest of the people who wanted to join were put on the ride as soldiers, emulating the paramilitary structure of the other gangs. The founding of Barrio Azteca meant that the group could now be recognized by other prison gangs as a formalized entity. With clear membership, putting it on first stage of existence. The gang was now a player in Texas prison systems. Nonetheless though, unlike the membership requirements of the established prison gangs, there was no blood in, no blood out. Jose explained membership was informal. It was just a yeah I'm in the gang just by saying it. During the meeting Jose suggested the name Barrio Azteca. In allusion to his Mexican heritage, the name stuck. The next day, Jose used his job as an SSI to push the word all through the prison and let everybody know Barrio Azteca had just been born. Despite the strong organization of the group, Jose described the initial objectives as twofold. One, to provide solidarity for the inmates from El Paso and Juarez, and two, to ensure that the group would not be part of or victimized by any other prison gang ever. 
formalized name group provided security for new recruits to its ranks under the banner of Paso del Norte Brotherhood. An offer of steady protection proved to be an effective proposition, and Barrio Azteca steadily and consistently recruited and grew in the Texas prison systems. Barrio Azteca survived the late 1980s without drawing significant attention. The literature from the time does not consider them at all. They were secret. Nonetheless, Barrio Azteca survived its early years by evolving into a predator group. In other words, survival, the second step on the scale required in gang membership, required Barrio Azteca to use violence to underwrite its existing and continued growth. Although Jose downplayed the role of violence during the early incarnation of Barrio Azteca, particularly on the streets, he acknowledged the gang's authority and streak in El Paso. They owned the city. One such example of Barrio Azteca's early predatory behavior within prison led to the establishment of the prison gang Mejicles. In 1987, the Mejicles started as a group of paisas, or Mexican nationals, who had grouped together for many of the same reason Jose formed Barrio Azteca. The Mejicles were an upstart group in the Cofield unit. They formed because of the Aztecas, alienated and shunned them when they wouldn't join. They were a very small group, Jose explained, not very many of them. And thus, history repeated itself. Now, as a predator group, Barrio Azteca preyed on the weaker cliques to recruit their members. Just as Barrio Azteca had responded to the Mexican Mafia and Texas Syndicate, the Mejicles formalized their ex existence to respond and attack the Barrio Azteca. The Mejicles, however, never became a Tier 1 security threat group, meaning that TDC never deemed them as a preeminent risk. The Mejicles likely failed to significantly expand in TDC because most of their members were foreign nationals and get deported when they leave. Nonetheless, the Mejicles, like Barrio Azteca, became a principal competitor in the protection market in Ciudad Juarez, where many of its members were deported upon completion of their prison sentence. The proxy war that unfolded between Barrio Azteca and the Mejicles and their allies, a gang called Artistas Asesinos on behalf of the Juarez and Sinaloa cartels, was the largest driver of the city's body count. Another example of Barrio Azteca's ability to act as a predator was its capacity to curb drive-by shootings in El Paso. When Barrio Azteca members were, rele were released, membership and the gang's presence expanded into the street and into the jail whose members were rearrested. Barrio Azteca's presence and dominance among El Paso inmates allowed it to create rules that affected the criminal underground of the street pattern of informal social control that is preserved consistently with southwestern Hispanic prison gangs, thereby promoting low levels of violence in the city. Jose, when hearing about the death of a little girl killed in the drive-by, totally banned the practice in El Paso. The killing of the little girl told me, tore me up, he said, but I knew that I ran that county jail, that all my people, it's all Aztecas, I let it be known, you know what, you come in for a drive-by? won't leave out. According to the police and gang members' interviews, drive-bys went from being a relatively frequent practice in the 80s in El Paso to almost never happening during the 1990s. In fact, El Paso went from being a city with a reputation of gang violence to one of the safest cities in the United States under Jose's control. As Barrio Azteca established control in El Paso's jail and a significant presence in state prisons, it established a foothold in illicit enterprise namely the drug business. As the Barrio Azteca organization and its members matured, 
The amateur and unplanned nature that characterized the group's early days gave way to more professionalized code of business and conduct. By this time, Jose already left the gang, never to return in any significant role. He became a heroin addict consumed with his attention to drugs. In his absence, Jose's captains assumed leadership and reshaped Barrio Azteca to emulate its competitors within the prison system. They instituted a rigid hierarchy, established clear rules, demanded unconditional loyalty, and created a set of obligations known as putting in work for new recruits. These changes indicated that Barrio Azteca was approaching the third step of the Leicester scale, maturity. Barrio Azteca had completed its evolution from a mere solidarity group that sought to avoid inter-gang wars into a bona fide prison gang that controlled the streets of El Paso, Texas. In one trial in which he testified, Charlie, a gang squad detective in El Paso Police Department, noticed that the state of Texas officially designated Barrio Azteca as a security threat group in 1983. I mean, 93, excuse me. Barrio Azteca members who had joined in the 1990s and 2000s described the organizational structure of the gang's hierarchy inside a prison. Though the terms varied over time, the hierarchy remained consistent from the 90s through the noughties indicating that Barrio Azteca has earned a security threat group status by establishing a clear bureaucracy. Inmate policy typically falls among racial lines and prison gangs recruit new inmates based on their new ethnicity and or place of origin. Inmates generally have three choices when they enter a prison yard. Fend for themselves, find religion, or join a gang. Joining an inmate group typically involves pledging allegiance to one's race. Members in most basic form of inmate group organizational history have been forced to respect the dominant prison gang of that race in prison. It's called the Convict Code. In the Barrio Azteca, a step up from being part of the general Hispanic inmate community in a position called Esquina. Esquina, which means corner in Spanish, is slang for having somebody's back. Fighting in a corner, one does have to worry about being attacked from behind. Bruce was one of their skinos. Bruce described his former role and obligations simply. I became an esquina. In other words, a prospect. I started doing their dirt. Bruce's job was to extort sex offenders on half of the game. If you had a child sex crime, you'd have to pay at least 150 a week. I didn't care how you got it. You'd call your mom, call your dad, call somebody shit out $150 a week. We don't care. Sex offenders get their ass beat every day if they don't pay rent in Texas. The work that Bruce put in allowed him to gain status indicators, inked in tattoos such as the feathers that indicated he had his harachis. Despite prospecting for engaging in violent acts on behalf of the Barrio Azteca, Bruce eventually decided to decline further advancement because he did not feel membership gave him any benefits. Some new Hispanic inmates become what the Barrio Azteca call prospectos or prospects. In a transition period where there is an investigation done, Barrio Azteca will have your padrinos or godfathers pretty much take this role and bring people into the game. Pretty much they're going to answer for the prospect. They're going to send up a letter or what they call a weaver of the chain of command and let them know the guy's good. It'll go to a captain. Right now that we know of, there's five captains for Barrio Azteca. One of those five captains will bless off on this process, and the approval will come back down the lane. And if it's a yes, then he is inducted into the game. If it's a no, they stop dealing with him. 
It's a simple prospect process. From prospect, you become a soldier. From a soldier, then you become carnal. Carnal is for life. That means brother. Once a prospect becomes a carnal, he can climb the hierarchy, transitioning from being a mere soldier to a sergeant, to a lieutenant, with the ultimate goal for some to become the captain. These rankings within the hierarchy influence rank in prison and on the street. They do not always transfer exactly upon release. For upon release, one must respect the Azteca that's overseeing that area. Upon release, Aztecas returning to the Paso del Norte area encountered lucrative criminal enterprises associated with the drug trade. The connections made in prison, the pre-existing contact with traffickers, and everything else made it heaven for them to make a lot of money. It was at this point when the government considered them an absolute mature organization. They have succeeded in a successful prison game. But, however, Barrio Azteca did not return to the free world as a street game. Organizationally, it was distinct. Its members had done time and put in work. They were adults, not kids. The organization occupied a higher perch in the local and regional drug trade compared to the street gangs, a status that appeared obvious to the residents of Paso del Norte. Scoperto, a Barrio Azteca ex-member, had been blessed into the gang without being in prison, given his usefulness into the drug trade. Scoperto had no interest in being part of one of the youth gangs that had no currency in the drug trade and would be taxed by the Aztecas. By becoming an Azteca, he did what the family asked him to do. Scoperto transported drugs over the border from Juarez to El Paso. Everyone involved in the trafficking operation would take a turn at being a possible fall guy. Once in a family, you do what's best for the family. He said it was your turn, so I took my turn, he said. While most of the wholesale drugs that reach El Paso are sold to traffickers who transport the drugs to other parts of the United States, Barrio Azteca holds back a little for themselves in El Paso. On the street, Aztecas dominate the retail market in Juarez and El Paso. Aztecas who had more than one tienda paid a, paid a tax for the right to operate the extra stores. Drug dealers who were not affiliated with Barrio Azteca were likewise taxed. The system allowed Barrio Azteca to gain a monopoly on the heroin and cocaine trade in El Paso, the city's most commonly used hard drugs. White gangs like the Aryan Brotherhood sold methamphetamines, while black gangs like the Gangster Disciples sold crack. However, they paid their quota too to the Barrio Aztecas, no matter what gang they were in. In Juarez, Mexico, life as an average Barrio Azteca member, one who could no longer cross back into El Paso, developed somewhat differently and in some respects separately, indicating that setting, settings and circumstances do influence enterprise decisions. In the Texas prison system, Barrio Azteca did recruit Mexican nationals, typically men from Juarez, into its ranks and with almost all criminal aliens, these men were deported back to their country. Since most Aztecas were from El Paso, these men returned to Juarez where many continued a life of crime. The deportation of Aztecas effectively exported the prison gang and its organizational traditions, connections, and behaviors back to the city of Juarez, Mexico, where they began there. The deportation and transplantation of prison gangs is a phenomenon which has been seen elsewhere, perhaps most notably with MS-13 and 18th Street. The exact same thing that took place with those two gangs from California was taking place in Texas at the exact same time.
in the cases of MS-13 and 18th Street and Barrio Azteca, deportation effectively forced the migration of the gang members who confronted with poverty, poor social control, and a lack of economic opportunity would feel more likely to do crime. Although some outlets report that Barrio Azteca in El Paso is an organized, distinct, separate entity from the Aztecas and Juarez, this distinction is not correct. They are the same gang. Local police and Barrio Azteca gang members all report that the two are halves of one whole, albeit in different states, with different captains in different countries, they're still the same gang. We cooperate on both sides of the border with everything, like drug dealing or having to come pick people up. But the one that runs it over there, a different style, will usually be from the United States. And although Barrio Azteca is a transnational organization, all of its members are not. An El Paso-based Barrio Azteca member can enter and leave Juarez with only a passport or a passport card. No visas required and no passport checks occur as one enters Juarez from El Paso. So criminal records do not impede Barrio Azteca members from entering. Consequently, the capacity of some members to go back and forth across the border legally through the control checkpoints is a huge benefit for their gang. Like the American counterparts, many of the Juarez-based Aztecas later returned to prison, although in Mexico. Prison life in Ciudad Juarez is distinct from that in Texas. Juarez Municipal Jail and State Prison are both known as being horrible. The Chihuahua State Prison is a high-security prison governed by criminal organizations, including Barrio Azteca. According to human rights experts, 65% of Mexico's prisons are totally under inmate rule, nothing to do with guards controlling them. There is no comprehensive research on the social order of Mexican prisons, so it's difficult to comment on the recruitment process of gang members there. Dominant prisoners employ violence to subjugate their fellow inmates in Mexico, and the general population wing is viewed as a dangerous place to do time. The rival factions have access to weapons and have noted and fought each other in the past. One notable riot in Juarez occurred in March 4, 2009, when members of Barrio Azteca attacked their rivals, the Mexicans, resulting in 20 deaths. Clearly, their American counterparts, the Juarez-based Aztecas, sought to take advantage of protection rackets. But conflict within the gang in El Paso characterized the early years of Barrio Azteca's association with the cartel. Regardless of who's in charge or when they're in charge, both gang members and law enforcement officials report shifts in organizational strategy that focus on behaviors that improve business and financial outcomes. The gang is now working to make more money. When the federal government targeted Barrio Azteca's leadership on racketeering charges, it disrupted Barrio Azteca's operations in two important ways. First, the prosecution sowed distrust among the ranks and file, giving prosecutors success in turning some members into state witnesses. Second, the prosecution disrupted the organization's ability to promote new leaders, creating a leadership void in the Barrio Azteca's prison system arm, especially because the racketeering prosecutions accompanied a concerted attack on the gang's leadership by Texas Prison Administration. Accordingly, the vertical hierarchical structure that helped maintain order was gone instantly. When Barrio Azteca could no longer fill its leadership positions, it could no longer assert control over new inmates or attract new members because its numbers relative to other prison gangs started to fall. The loss in manpower and market share within the state's prisons and the TDC 
to reduce the threat level attributed by gang one and two tier gangs indicated that the gang still has a significant presence within the prisons and on the streets, but they are not powerful like they used to be. It's a demotion that squares with the accounts of gang members and inmates recently released to Texas prisons who describe a lack of Barrio Azteca members in general population. They're not there anymore.